Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Inside Japan podcast. On this episode, I'm going to do something a little bit different. I've been doing this for over a year now, and I've got so many lessons learned from some of the most interesting people I've met in Japan. So, I'm going to share with you some of the best lessons from our top guests in the last year. I hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you found it useful, please consider sharing it with a friend or giving us a rating on iTunes. So, before I came to Japan, I actually Invested heavily in、uh, kanji.、Um, I'm a firm believer that if you can read,、uh, it gives you quite an advantage because you can immerse yourself constantly. If you're on the train, you can immerse things and、uh, it gives you access to you know, one of the best ways to learn.、Um, I, have a, I have a son,、uh, one of my sons, and he figured out the secret to learning. If you talk to him and, or a teacher talks to him and the teacher finishes, or I finish. He's the, one of the few who will actually raise his hand and say, Excuse me,、uh, I had no idea what you just said, or excuse me, can you back up and <laughs> tell me what that meant? Because a lot of times we just kind of nod our way through. But that ability to use the resources around you, whether it's something written or a human, that ability is incredible. So, one of the most powerful ways I learn is if I'm looking, I remember being on a train and looking at a kanji, looking at a sentence I couldn't read. And I would say to the guy next to me,、uh, Excuse me,、um, can you help me read that? <laughs> oh, wow. I would and, never want to do that on a train in Tokyo because people just look at you like you're a crazy person. <laughs> you know, but what you just did there is you're not wrong, but you have to go to what percent of the time you're not wrong. Because for、mm. every 10 interactions, Three times someone's like,、uh, this guy's nuts. But the other seven, they're like, oh, sure, this is how you read this. Do you, do, if you need anything else, just give me a tap. Oh, thank you so much. It's so nice to meet kind people like you in Tokyo. Oh, no worries. Where are you from? And all of a sudden, before you know it, my ride is spent talking and getting to know someone immersed in the language. And that's 30 minutes more than the other person sitting and learning by themselves.、Mm-hmm. So that ability. To, imp- to apply what you learn, right? Applied linguistics. Like that is the ultimate key to when you go back to the sports, right? You're, you, when you brought up that sports reference, when you join the sports, most of the, the sports is in the language. Afterwards, you're talking in the language. So, what's nice about that is you have the opportunity to use the language. But what if you can create that every day、mm. in every interaction? For the listeners out there who want to open up their own school, the first part is you have to understand what your goal is in three to five years.、Mm-hmm. So, what I mean by that is、uh, do you want to manage five schools? Do you want to manage three schools? Or are you perfectly happy with running, with running one school where you're the only teacher?、Mm-hmm. And I think based on that, How you approach making your school completely changes. Because、mm. if you want to own three schools, you have to think about locations. Then you have to think about、uh, management because you can't do everything yourself. And if you only want, if you only want to have one school where、uh, you have your own, you teach what you want, kind of work when you want, maybe opening your own school might not actually be the best idea. And rather just teaching privates. To a large、mm-hmm. amount of students.
I didn't know what I was doing then, like I know what I'm doing now, but it just worked. It worked because there was respect in the classroom. I made a lot of mistakes. I used to mix Japanese and English and say, give me your shukudai, put that in the gomibako. You know, it was really bad. I, I was, but they felt my heart. They felt my passion. I was in love with them. And then little by little, I learned how to teach the way I teach now because I observed my students and looked at what would worked and what didn't work. And they didn't like it when I mixed Japanese and English. They wanted the thrill of being able to understand me in English. And I gave them simple, easy to understand English and they could do it. So my kids were my first mentors, my mentors, not my first, my mentors. Mm. Everything I learned about teaching English in Japan, I learned from my students. The difference between Japan and other countries is that there's a shortage of talent, like declining populations, many different reasons contribute to the fact that there's a lack of talent in Japan. And so that drives up prices. And so the fees for our industry are the highest in the world. So for example, wow. Singapore, 15 to 20% is considered typical for a recruitment commission fee. In Japan, we start at 35%. And 35% is pretty standard. And we go up as high as 60 to 70% for really difficult to find talent. Uh, there isn't really a one size fits all personality for the type of person that be, can be successful. It used to be when I started in this in business that it was only extroverts. So really outgoing, friendly, energetic people who love meeting lots of people did well in this business. Um, but there's been a shift. Those people still exist but also really conscientious, diligent people who are able to go really deep into understanding a technical area mm -hmm. um, and are good communicators, but maybe prefer to communicate digitally using text message or email over phone are also doing well. But I think that some of the key traits that are required are you have to be a quick learner because mm -hmm. you're not only learning the industry of recruitment, but you're also learning the industry that you're covering. So that's two industries you have to learn, which is quite unique. You, the second point is that you have to have a natural curiosity mm -hmm. and the curiosity about people to learn about people and actually care about people. Even if you're maybe not the best at having lots of face-to-face -face communication, you still have to have a curiosity. Mm -hmm. uh, and I suppose there is a lot of hard work involved in recruitment. It's not an easy job. In the early days, the hours can be very long. Um, that gets better as you develop your network and you're not starting every conversation with nice to meet you. Uh, but yeah, in the early days, definitely uh, the hours tend to be quite long. Well, I mean, you just sort of imagine the um, landlord or the owner's point of view. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is that just know the market, right? Like what do Japanese people like when they're renting an apartment? Okay. Japanese people, when they rent an apartment, usually want it to be within 10 minutes walk of the nearest station. Okay. They usually want it to be on a higher floor and they usually want to have an elevator. And oftentimes they would want to have a parking space. Okay. So those four things. So let's pretend you wanted to get a good deal and you wanted to find something unique. Forget about those four things. Tell your agent that you're perfectly fine if it's far from the station because you're going to ride your bicycle anyway. Um, you don't care if it's on the first floor. You don't need a parking space. And um, what was Go the elevator. other one? You don't need an elevator. Elevator, and you don't really care because if you're on the first floor, you do not need an elevator. So the hardest apartments for landlords and owners to fill 
are ones that don't have a, a parking space, are far from the station, are, and you had mentioned that your apartment that you got for a really good deal was not like in the center of Tokyo. No, no, it's a little bit further out, but it was, it was reasonably well connected. It was a few minutes walk from the station and that station went all the way to, uh, directly into, uh, Seibu Shinjuku. So, um, yeah. it wasn't, it, it was a little bit inconvenient. Like it took about 20 minutes to get to, um, Takeda no Baba, which is on the Yamanote line. So it was well, kind of, yeah. It's really clear because you just, it doesn't have to be all four of those points. If you can cover one of those points, you usually have some type of negotiating power. Mm. So... I think in your case, you had mentioned that yours had like a concierge that would receive your packages for you. Right. And you also said that your management fee, the monthly management fee was like 21,000 yen. Right. Okay. For a typical Japanese person who's going to pay something like Jumayan a month, like 100,000 yen per month, a management fee of 21,000 yen is very expensive. So even if somebody's going to pay, let's say 150,000 yen a month, Still 21,000 yen per month. That's separate from your utilities, right? Your utilities were separate or... Included? I think it included some of them. I think it had... Um, I think there was like Wi-Fi included in the building and things like that. There were a few other things too, but, but yeah. But electricity wouldn't have been included, No, right? no. It wouldn't, it wouldn't include electricity and gas. Yeah. So a lot of... So you can imagine like a local person. What would a local person think? What would an international person think, right? Right. So a local person who speaks perfect Japanese would be like, I don't need anyone to accept my packages for me. I'm fine. I can do it myself. And um, you don't need to charge me this month much per month for these services because I would rather have a lower monthly rate, right? So somebody who's in the 100,000 to maybe 200,000 yen range in Japan uh, would probably want not need that concierge. They don't want that. Right. And they would rather have a lower management fee. So um, that would make it difficult for that landlord to find someone to rent that apartment. I see. And it's not it's not like in a Zabujuban, it's not in one of these posh areas. So if you're not in a posh area and it's a pretty large apartment and you have a concierge, that's going to make it hard to find a Japanese renter. Mm. When you're talking to your agent, so a specific advice that I would give is a lot of people get into the trap of looking online. And since a lot of us do read Japanese and understand Japanese, uh, people will look for apartments just meant for the Japanese public. And that's when you get into the whole, no, no, we don't want Gaikokujin. I don't speak English. No, thank you. Right? So what I recommend is going to an agent that's used to working with Gaikokujin. So um, like if you look at their website and you see that they have English on their website, that would be a good hint that maybe they are have had international clients in the past. So they would know which... Um, of their clients would say no to, you know, internationals or whatever. So mm -hmm. choosing your agent is really important. And then understanding what Japanese people like, and then maybe giving in on one or two of those points will give you um, a lot of negotiating power, I think. I was focused on, you know, conference presentation, you know, TED style presentations, of course, but, you know, doctors and all sorts of people go to conferences, researchers, um, you know, boardrooms, all of that. So on stage or in a boardroom, live presentations, student presentations, whatever. I wasn't really thinking about online uh, until about a year ago, <laughs> actually. Yeah. Uh, but many of the things did apply. And in fact, in the second edition of the book, I have a call out section 
from the, the master online presenter who's in Australia. And he wrote a special section on that because he had contacted me saying that the principles in the book can, you know, the principles as principles uh, can be applied directly to online meetings and making videos and so on. So this is coming from the, the guru in Australia. So yeah, the principles, you know, each case is different. So it's, that's why I talk a lot about principles, storytelling principles and graphic design principles, how you implement them will be different for each case. But what we don't want to do is to do something like, let's see if I have something, well, I can kind of show you what was happening. So when I, um, in February of 2020, right, we had to go all online. So I had students make videos, but uh, you know, make a video recording of their presentations, which they did in, usually in PowerPoint. And then you get something like this, right? So this is me looking at the computer screen. Even if it's a good slide like this, um, still it's, you know, the person speaking is this tiny little thing. Right. And they're, they're looking at their notes that are usually looking at themselves as they're talking, not very engaging, and they seem very uncomfortable with it. So right. we learned how, so scratch that. So we learned how to make better videos. So we ended up doing something like this. And then I always thought that we, it should be like the network news. I mean, we, you know, the BBC, we know how to do this. We, the presenter needs to be, you know, front and center and the visuals complement and you can go in and out from visuals and, you know, the, the screen can go black you can do all sorts of things, but we shouldn't just be this little voice, you know, where we never see the person. I could show the slide. I'm showing the slide full screen. <laughs> so you could do something like this anyway. So sorry about the people who are driving in their car who couldn't see, <laughs> but yeah, you're very familiar with it. Cause we see it on the news all the time. You watch 22 minute news program. You see the presenter. I think in England or in UK, they call it more of a TV presenter. It's not a mm -hmm. term they use as much in the States, but, uh, and you see that person, sometimes it's a close up, sometimes it's full body. You see a lot of text around, you know, there can be text overlays, you know, there's, there's photos, there's charts and graphs, there's interview, you know, in 22 minutes, there's a lot of visual stuff going on there, but it's not just a death by PowerPoint kind of thing. <laughs> oh, so that's what we did. And so in those days, this is be before, um, if I looked at it, something, sorry, if I look at something, you know, like this. So in those days, uh, even just using something like iMovie. So you record yourself and then you re can record the slides at the same time. You can make a movie of the slides, PowerPoint or Keynote in Windows or Mac, whatever you're doing. And then it's just very easy to sync that up in something like iMovie, right? And students did that so much better. It's a little bit, mm -hmm. you know, there's a few more steps involved, but it's quite easy to do. And they actually really love doing it. My students' evaluations have never been higher in the 20 years I've been at Kansai Gaidai, and that's true wow. for the entire university. It's, in, it's insane. We never thought that would be like this. Students are actually happier. They're definitely making better presentations. Um, you know, they can have their notes, but I don't know that they're ever even looking at their notes because the notes are right there next to the camera, right? So there's a lot of advantages, and, um, you know, the, the content that they're creating is uh, really awesome. And one thing I've cultivated that I would highly advise learning any language or any skill is to have a lack of trust of your own innate ability. And that sounds actually counterintuitive, mm -hmm. but for example, Vietnamese or, uh, I learned this with Mandarin. Um, I was learning Mandarin from books. And so I got in my head what the tones and the sounds like were like, mm -hmm. but Chinese people couldn't understand me. <laughs> and I realized, yeah, that sucks. You know, I was like, wow, I'm speaking, but nobody can understand me. Mm -hmm. And I, so I had to start from scratch and I had to just listen and I would take these expressions and sentences and listening to a native speaker over and over again. Not, and I learned that um, the way it works in Chinese, and actually I learned this, it really works this way in every language, is that every language is tonal. Mm 
We just don't know it. We go up, we go down. And if you try to focus on learning the tones of one word, uh, what ends up happening is that word gets next to other words. Mm. Everything changes. So instead, what I do now is I like to have whole sentences, ideally whole paragraphs. That gives me the context. Mm. Um, I don't care about the grammar so much. I just want the whole paragraph there. I follow it with my pen, and I want to hear a native speaker reading it. Mm-hmm. And I don't want them to speak slowly. I want them to speak the way they speak. Right. And then I just listen to it like a million times. And eventually, I start, I'm following with my pen. And then eventually, I start shadowing them. And I try to, I try to follow them. And then I try to get literally, I try to go up when they go up and down when they go down. Right. If you do that for a number of months or years, I mean, it, it, it just doesn't have to be a long time. It could be five minutes a day, you know. You do that, you're gonna be you're gonna be pretty solid. Then if you throw in running a business together to that, unless your relationship is very, very strong, it could be uh, really it could have a really, really bad effect on, on the relationship. You're never gonna be able to switch off, you're always gonna be taking work home. And that, that inevitably there will be pressures. I know of so many uh, international marriages that have ended in divorce where the husband and wife have worked together that I would recommend against it very, very highly, you know. And I think you've really got to think about, you know, do you actually want to start a school or are you just thinking you, you, you'll do that because it's something that you can do and you, you're not happy working for your employer anymore? Um, uh, noting what you say about, you know, younger people wanting to go with a, a bigger startup, I think, you know, the industry has gone in that direction as well anyway in that, the, the adult market has virtually disappeared. It hasn't completely disappeared, but compared mm-hmm. to when I started, there are very, very few adults who will pay the high rates that we used to charge um, to study English. And, and you need those higher paying students to make a, a, a livable wage. And there's only a certain yeah. number of hours you can teach in a week. And there's a big, big focus on, on the kids market. And there are so many great, well-equipped schools around that if you don't have premises that have that wow factor the first time that parents walk in, and they go to one that does have a wow factor, they're not going to join your school, you know. So I think the set of costs are much more, the set of costs are certainly higher than when I started in my spare room. And I think the set of costs are really, really quite high. Rent a premises, do it out, get your, you know, your short throw interactive projectors, all your IT stuff, you know, um, big areas that kids can play. You're competing essentially with Gakado run by huge companies for essentially, you're competing for, Children's time after school is what you're competing for. So you're competing against swimming schools, you're competing against climbing walls, um, you're competing against Gakado, singing, hip hop, all of these uh, uh, after school activities is what you're competing against. And uh, I, I think a higher level of investment is required than certainly yeah. was when, when I started. We did um, uh, a summer event with a uh, ro- a programming school uh, called ProGlab, um, which I think are, are fairly well known, um, at an elementary school. And we had 40 students um, join this three, uh, no, one, three one-day events, three, so it was just one day per group. Um, and they, we did programming and robotics in English. Um, and in order for them to actually be able to do the tasks, like talk together, um, uh, design things, and then it, the final task that they were they were leading up to in this camp 
was that they would make a robotic zoo. They'd make animal robots and then program a car to go around their zoo and then uh, actually give a, a spoken tour to um, the school principal who was uh, posing as a foreign dignitary, um, all in English. Um, and in order for them to do that, obviously there's a lot of vocabulary, there's a lot of phrases, simply things like, like what should we do next? Or uh, I, I think it should turn left here. Uh, those kinds of chunks that, that would help them to actually communicate about it. Um, so for about three weeks before the camp, uh, they studied a list of about 50 vocabulary items, uh, some of were phrases. Um, and after completing that, we did the event. And it, what was really cool about it was they, I mean, they used English the whole time. Um, otherwise, if we were, you know, there's no way you can get through 50 items of, of vocabulary for like in a lesson, right? It's just impossible. Mm -hmm. um, but they came already having done all of that. We could check it on the analytics. We could see that everybody had done it. Um, and boom, we just went into it. Um, and yep, they used the phrases. They spoke together. It was, it was a really neat event. If you enjoyed that episode and you like what we're doing with Inside Japan, please consider going to iTunes and giving us a 5-star rating and sharing this episode with a friend who you think it might be useful for. As always, a huge thank you to JobsInJapan.com for sponsoring this podcast. And if you're looking for our other episodes, you can find them there and keep us in mind next time you're looking for work in Japan. Thanks so much for listening and see you again soon.